Five, four, three, two, one. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Agency Podcast. Eugene here, your agent in Toronto. And Candy Minks here in Chicago. Today, we're going to follow up on Candy's trip to Albuquerque. Yes, thank you. I will, because last week I realized I just started talking and I didn't set anything in context. I do participate in this conference. I've been doing it for about six years. It's a pop culture conference based basically for academics, but the public can go, different people can go, but it does tend to be a lot of academics, mostly. And then there's some independent uh, researchers that also participate and, and people who go to find out what's going on. It's a very good, innovative setting for for talking about everything that you watch on TV on, or that you're reading or podcasts or movies. And um, it's a little different than some of the other um, pop culture conventions because this has a 43-year history of having a Grateful Dead room. And the Grateful Dead room is its own entity within the conference. So you stay in a hotel, just like any other conference, and you have all these rooms and you get a schedule and you can go bouncing around and hear about Hitchcock or contemporary art or First Nations and Indigenous peoples or Cormac McCarthy or esotericism. I mean, it goes on. And so last week I was talking about some of the panels I witnessed and I um, and, and listened to. And we've brought in a couple of guests. We, we think we're going to have some guests for the next over the next couple of months, actually. I really think we're going to pursue that every now and then just. Um, bring them into the podcast. So Eugene, this week, um, we've talked to two different groups of people. One, uh, women in the military. We talked to Deborah Deacon and Stacy Fowler. And I think everyone's going to find that conversation really interesting. And then we have a segment on faith-based cooking with Lisa Florshack. And she's going to tell us a bit about uh, the split between Mennonites and Amish and Prussia. Um, she's got a lot of information there. And one thing I really want to do is I'm going to publish on social media. I took pictures of her presentation. So it's they're going to really inform each other and uh, take it from there. She's pretty entertaining. And it was really fun talking to them. So today uh, you get to listen to our, our guests instead of our usual uh, kind of banter. So uh, yeah. we're going to go right to those interviews and we're going to stack them up one after the other, both of them. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so we hope you really enjoy it and we'll be back at you next week. Aha. Five, four, three, two, one. We're here with two special guests that I met at the conference recently. Um, over the years, actually, I've seen them a couple of times in the uh, the New Mexico Conference for Pop Culture. It's Stacy Fowler and Deborah Deacon, and they're going to talk to us about women in the military and why is that important. Hi, ladies. Hi. That's Deborah. Yeah. Stacy, how you doing? I'm doing well today. How are y'all? Good. Why should we care about women in the military? Uh, well, as a military woman. I okay. will say, and you can see all my little military dolls behind me. There. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, I would say it's because women have as much of a responsibility towards the country as men do. We have the same rights. We have the same responsibilities. 
And over the last 50 years, six, 70 years, I guess we've proven that we can hold our own um, in the military doing the same jobs as most of the men do. Um, and so I think it makes us better citizens. Wow. Here in, 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 uh, here in Canada, where I live, okay, um, we have we have had a problem over the past several years with a systemic harassment of women in our armed forces and our federal police force, the RCMP, mm -hmm. um, which seems to be a kind of rot that goes right to the top. Um, is that the case in the American armed forces as well? My understanding is today it is. Now, I went in in 1976, you know, bicentennial year and, and retired in 96. And while there was a certain, shall we say, prejudice against women holding certain jobs, pretty much if you acted professionally, you were treated pretty professionally. But I think in the last 20 years, or so, the composition of the American military, at least, has changed quite a bit. And it's a lot more um, not as well educated men, shall we say, or men who are not in favor of women's liberation, to use an old fashioned term, um, and who seem to think they have a perfect right to do whatever they want um, to someone who is perhaps more vulnerable than they are. Hmm. So yes, it's a problem in the American military too. And in most of the militaries I'm right, we're writing about right now. Exactly. Yeah. It's pretty universal. So maybe yeah. it's part of our times. Would you say it's even universal in the Israeli army? Yes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I'm sorry oh, to hear that. Yeah. I assumed it wasn't. No. I would think not because they do have universal uh, conscription. Yes. But the women are not treated the same. Definitely not. There is a lot of sexual harassment. Yeah. There's a lot of not being able to climb the ladder, do certain jobs because they're females. Right. So. Right. 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 You know, it's funny because I just want to say to our listeners, too, a lot of people assume, let's look at a world that was a perfect world, so an imaginary world with no war. Mm -hmm. It would still need military because right. military does search and rescue. It does um, oil oil cleanup. So it's I think maybe we're looking maybe there's that 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 sense of competitiveness right. in the military that seems to have surfaced. You give such a good example of it since the 90s. Maybe it's a misunderstanding that we need to refocus that military isn't just about fighting. Right. It's not everybody's a ground pounder who's going to go take that hill, especially in modern warfare, where everything is so automated. Um, and Stacy's paper at this SWAT, uh, at the conference last week um, talked about specifically drone pilots, you know, who are sitting mm hundreds if not thousands of miles away from the fighting and I should let Stacy talk about it because those mm. were the, the movies you talked about um, so yeah it's not so much you need to be able to carry you know 500 pounds five mm. miles kind of thing anymore 
you know, Stacy, a member of the chair force, as they're called a lot. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. That Stacey, must be terrifying a being a, a drone, a drone pilot sitting so far away. Your target's like a video game, but you have the power of life and death over people. It must right. be just chilling doing that job. Well, I personally don't know, but the films I looked at and the studies that I compared them to for actual Air Force pilots. It is um, the responsibility, especially with collateral damage, mm -hmm. when your superiors tell you, go ahead and shoot, and you know you're going to kill civilians. That's yes, a, it's horrible. A big, yeah, that yeah. one's a big one for, seems like everybody, you know, on screen and in real life. Hmm. Yeah. Stacy, what films do you, can you tell us what you talked about, the films you looked at? The films I looked at, um, there were two American films and four foreign films. It was Drones, Good Kill, which are two American ones. There's one called Full Contact, which is from the Netherlands. Um, Drone Strike is a film short. Mm -hmm. Eye in the Sky, which was, right. uh, that was a theater one with uh, Helen Mirren in it. Right. Mm -hmm. and I forget the name of the other one right now. That's okay. Thank you. There yeah. were there were six films in all, right. and only one oh, of them. Oh, the one about Telluride. Oh, that's it. The Madness of Telluride. Whatever. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah, but five out of the six were featuring <laughs> what were supposed to be American crews, even though only two of the films were American films, which I found that interesting. Mm -hmm. The Netherlands film was about an American pilot, not someone in the Netherlands. So that was interesting. Mm -hmm. Like we're in the forefront of that, I guess. So they put us in the movies as well. Mm -hmm. it, it's kind of scary thinking about um, the drone thing, because when you think of AI and drones, if that's removed, there's the, the conversation that humans have a code of conduct and drones don't. And you think then, well, this, if the soldiers within their community aren't having codes of conduct with how they treat each other, how are they going to treat other countries or perceived enemies? Um, that's concerning too. I wonder how the statistics would play out or what you, if you see anything in that. I do. I think that in the last 20 years or so, in fact, we were going to have a panel about this, a round table. And then because people didn't come, we didn't talk yeah. about it that much. But in the American military, because it's become much more right wing. I mean, when I joined the military, the, we were doing it as a feminist statement. You know, women can do the job the same as the men and we'll prove it to you. And we did. And now women can do pretty much any job in the military. Um, but it, as the military has gotten more right wing, um, this macho, you know, attitude, which is now also part of, and actually we did talk about this in our roundtable. Um, this macho civilianized people where who are driving Hummers and they need an AK-47 to go squirrel hunting, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, I think that that I'm a tough guy and I could do anything I want to you because you're a prisoner. I think that's out there a lot. Yeah. And not just with the man. I mean, you got like right. the Taylor Greens over there. Right, exactly. Taking their posters with their AKs and all that. Right. Yeah, that's true. It, it's yeah. not just the men. Yeah. Well, then look at the what's happening. Obviously, I sent a picture. We were we kind of did a quick text about, uh, you know, I said I may have joked with you. Don't fuck with Bubby. 
Uh, the woman that's in Ukraine, she's made all the cover coverage of mm -hmm. being in her 70s and she's mm -hmm. going to be a grandma and she's going to stand up for Ukraine and her grandchildren. Uh, so there's the other part where, you know, that we're idolizing that. We're approving of that. Right. Yeah. Under the guise of patriotism where, mm -hmm. well, and and I think Stacy and I talked about this while we were in Albuquerque, how you know, the, the Ukrainians have put out the call, oh, men between the ages of 16 and 60 can't leave, but their military is 14% women. Wow. So yeah. they, they didn't put out the call for the, you know, at least the unmarried women to hang around and help defend the country. Yes. They didn't now, but I read a couple of days ago when I was working on chapter one of the book that in December, they did a selective service kind of thing for women. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard oh, that. They weren't, you can't leave. Yeah, I just found that the other day. Okay. So between uh, the same ages, actually, 18 to 60, but they probably mm -hmm. won't conscript anyone that's not between 20 and 40. Right. But they were told they had to register with like selective service. Okay. Um, you know, so I don't know. Leave, so. Right. What would we do if somebody invaded our country? You know, I think that's a really individual choice to a certain extent if you're not presently in the military. You know, would you stay behind to help? Mm -hmm. um, what could you do possibly? Great question. Um, what comes to my mind, and I don't know if you guys have seen Fury Road, Mad Max. Yep. You've got, first of all, you've got women that were vulnerable. You've got a woman who's powerful. Then you have aged women. Mm -hmm. And who helps them is the aged women because they've lived a full life. They're ready to take a sacrifice. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So, the, yeah. So it, it's that science fiction that's helping us uh, try to perceive women's role and, and go beyond ageism. And I, I mm -hmm. think everybody, if somebody was doing this in the States, everybody would go nuts. They would definitely be part of it. I would yeah. hope so. Mm -hmm. I would hope so. Um, so... You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I was joking with a friend, you know, I can't do much with my Swiss Army knife. You know, at this point, it's not going to be all, especially since it's only this big, you know. But I would certainly like to think that I could do some stuff to help mm -hmm. something anyway. Um, Stacey, what do you think of the idea of uh, the empowerment of women in military? Uh, the other part of a disaster film if we're talking pop culture, is that women are these sitting ducks for rape and and then they can be controlled, you can control the men. If women are in the military, that might take away a bit of that. It should, absolutely. But you were talking about like Mad Max and I was thinking of Red Dawn. Yeah, oh, I love that original, movie. Right, so the teenagers, instead of the older people, they're going to go save the world. Right, they're going to save the world. Absolutely. Great, yeah, great example. But yeah, that, yeah. as far as... At least they're trained. So if they want to try and do the raping or and all that kind of stuff, they're trained to handle a person if they're in the military more than the average woman. So definitely that would help take some of that away. Mm -hmm. And we're not yeah. hearing about any of that in Ukraine, are we? No, not right point. now anyway. Not right now. No, we're just uh, mostly about what we're hearing is people lining up to get guns. Absolutely. Yeah. And everybody is staying to fight, it seems. And Bubby. Yep. And yeah. Bubby. Yeah. <laughs> I have Bubby. 
Now, I'm sure part of that is propaganda, too. I'm sure there's plenty of people getting out of Dodge as fast as they can. Well, yeah, they said, what, a half a million people have left. And I can understand that. Um, Especially since it seems that the invading forces are picking off civilians. Yeah, exactly. And no one no one wants their kids in that situation. Right. They're they're stronger with if you take your kids away, you're going to be able to fight better. Somebody has to take the children. Yes, I would agree. You know, you would think so, Candy. But recently here in Ottawa, when that truckers Mm. truckers and various hate groups convoy uh, that invaded Ottawa for 23 days or so. Unbelievable. um, You know, they were putting their kids as using them as human shields between themselves and the police. Wow. I, I can't even believe that. What kind of people yeah. are we talking about? Exactly. Exactly. Pri- privileged people, people who haven't suffered. Right. Exactly. I guess. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. And it's uh, a game to them. It's a game. They know the cops aren't going to hurt their kids and they're cowards and they don't think anyone's watching. It's they think they're pulling one over on people. And then the contrast with real struggle, you know, mm-hmm. I, that's why Ottawa closed it tried to close it down they had the perfect weekend because no one's sympathy was going to be with them anymore and, right yeah. and and right. here our police force took weeks to shut them down because they didn't want to hurt anybody right. yes and amazingly they did turn it around and got everybody out of there without any serious injuries which is that that, that is, is pretty amazing that's really impressive my question is what did those parents do to that the psyche of their children oh. by doing that. Um, those, you know, those kids will remember those images forever. I would think that I wouldn't feel really safe around my parents anymore <laughs> if they're putting me in front of them to get shot. You right. Know? right. I'm not sure I'd like that very much. No. And especially when it was already an emergency situation in a pandemic. And I, I wonder how they will take it because you know, they weren't being super cruel at first and just the, but the idea of the kids being in the truck for three or four days and playing on their devices. Even that, we would get mad if people do that in their homes, never right. mind in a truck with the gas running. In right. Apparently, the petrol was very bad there uh, with revving engines. I don't know. Oh, I can't that. imagine the pollution. Yeah. Yeah. And so the kids are breathing that. The adults are breathing it. Yeah. And Ottawa is... is- I mean, Ottawa is such is such a clean city. The last mm-hmm. time I was there, I saw a homeless guy carefully folding up his nice sleeping bag, you know, so he didn't get it mussed up. I mean, mm-hmm. it is a clean city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, you know, contrast that with people evacuating their children so that they can fight without with a reason for the kids to live to another generation. Right. You know, they want right. that generation to survive. Yeah. It's it's a nasty situation right now, I'm afraid. The other thing is, maybe is there something you can say about um, another manifestation of, of challenges in the military is even when women are in the military, sometimes it's hard for them to become stars, get the, you know, get their accreditation, a three star, four star. How do you find uh, that? That's changed over time. I know sure. when I joined women, first of all, right before I joined, they changed the rules so you could be married and stay in. And then it was, oh, if you get pregnant, you have to get out. And that changed the first couple of years I was in. Um, and 
a lot of times you're forced to make decisions if you marry another military person about whose career is going to take precedence, who's going to get the better job. Um, And I had a really close friend who had a who's unfortunately died from breast cancer, but um, she was one of the first women to command a ship and her career took precedence. She and her husband agreed her career would take precedence over his. And it took a while to convince people that that needed to happen. Mm. Um, It's gotten better. There are a lot more women flag and general ranks now than there used to be. Um, And again, that's because I I don't know how hard it is for women to really shine. I've had female friends who were commanding officers of aviation squadrons, uh, of air stations, naval bases. So it has changed over time. That's good. Um, You know, but I mean, and actually I, I knew a woman when I was, I guess it would have been 78 to 80. I was in Norfolk and she was um an aide to a a canadian admiral who was a very nice man and she was great she talked about how women were having a hard time because back then they couldn't go to sea Mm -hmm. and they couldn't they did couldn't have a warfare specialty and so she was kind of stuck she was never going to really be able to have a good career um but once my generation of women really showed we could do all this stuff that changed a lot. And, and now women have to have a warfare specialty in the military, in the American military um, to be able to even get the good jobs like public affairs and Mm -hmm. Intel, you have to, you have to prove yourself first. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's getting better. How is it with flying? Uh, you know, Apache uh, helicopters. I, I know one, uh, uh, a woman in uh, Tennessee, Apache mm-hmm. helicopter, but what's the ratio? Is it? I don't know about the yeah. army. Yeah. Um, Cause I was, I was in the Navy. So, mm-hmm. um, but I do believe, I mean, look at Tammy Duckworth. She mm-hmm. was a, you know, a hell, I can't remember what, if she flew Apaches or Comanches, but mm-hmm. You know, she was flying not just Huey medevac support, not that there was anything wrong with doing that, because that was a pretty dangerous job in Vietnam. Um, But Army and Marine Corps aviation is different from Air Force and Navy, because Army, a lot of Army, especially helicopter pilots, are warrant officers Mm -hmm. rather than commissioned officers who have gone through like the Naval Academy or, or the Air Force Academy. Um, so that makes a little bit of difference in what you're doing and what your career path is because you can only go warrant officer five, I think is the highest in the army right now. Um, so you can't go from being a helicopter pilot necessarily if you're a warrant officer to leading a squadron to um, becoming a general, it doesn't. They're they're capped at a certain level, so it's a little different. Hmm. Why why is that? Um, you know that's a good question, and I don't really know. Um, there were both. I know there were both 
commissioned officer helo pilots in vietnam in the army like medevac pilots and there were warrant officers um the navy doesn't use warrant officers to fly the, the navy strictly uses commissioned officers um and i don't i don't really know if that was a manpower issue initially um because you couldn't get enough people through either officer candidate school or, or the military academies or rotc to keep those slots filled and so you were filling them with with strong enlisted people uh that would be my guess but i don't really know Looking back at your experience in the military, mm -hmm. would you characterize it overall as a positive career experience, like a good place to work, a good place to be? Uh, for me, it was a very good place to be. Um, there were hiccups, obviously, along the road. Like I worked for a four-star admiral who I adored and who was very good to, he had four daughters who were a little younger than me so and the other women in the office. And he was very good about giving us professional advice and everything. Um, but you had to remind men a lot. You know, you can yell at me. I'm not going to cry. <laughs> if I screw up, it's okay to yell. <laughs> I promise I won't cry. You know, <laughs> yelled at the guy, you need to yell at me. Hey, you know, in any, in any job situation, it's best to be yelled at. Because if you get yelled at when you screw up, you get yelled at and then it's over. It's right. Over, Ex right. Exactly. If you don't get yelled at, you pay for an, an awful lot longer for your transgression. Exactly. I agree with that. Um, I liked, liked being in the Navy because I had a different job every couple of years. I did something different. Although when I was getting ready to retire, I kept saying, you know, I really don't have any skills. I didn't learn how to do X, Y, or Z. You know, I know how to manage anything. But I don't know that that's really a skill that translates. It does. But anyway, um, you know, I got to see a lot of things and do a lot of things, um, go a lot of places. Um, that was fabulous. Even my three years in New York City being a recruiter, which was not my wow. favorite job, wow. <laughs> not my favorite job. But even that was, you know, a learning experience. And um so I thought it was great for me. I, I learned a lot. Like I said, I, I got a graduate degree out of it. Um, That's good. That's really ran good. Ran in jail for a while. I did a whole lot of different things and, and met all kinds of different people. You know, wow. it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. So, Stacy, what is, just thinking about what are your, what did the people in your community think about um, your research? Are you, you've got students? No, I'm a librarian. You're a librarian. I have okay. students, but I don't have, I don't teach them because they're law students. I okay. am specific at the law school. So um, the other librarians on campus at the main library, they find it fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're in the perfect so, place for research. Yes. Yes. Yes, it makes my life easier. And I tried to join the military, just didn't work out for me. Okay. I went to basic and I am. Um, when they gave me my camouflage uniform, I broke out head to toe and hide, so they gave me a medical discharge. <laughs> so I was there two weeks, basically, as a recruit, and then I uh, just pulled CQ on graveyard and ate pizza the rest of the time till I went home. Oh. <laughs> oh. Cool. Well, it must be a fascinating kind of experience. I, 
you know, I've managed to avoid those sorts of um, highly organized mm. um, chain of command type operations as much as I could throughout my, my working life. I know I'd like to see somebody give you an order. <laughs> <laughs> well, interestingly enough, you know, I, I worked for the post office for 30 okay. years here in well. Canada. And at one time, um, one of one of the, the pools that the post office used for hiring was retiring military people. Oh, yeah. And so when I started working in the mid eighties at Canada post, there was quite a number of people that I got to know who had experience working in, in the military and then brought that experience mm -hmm. over to Canada post. So at that time, our organization was very military type organization. We were, we were expected to follow orders and we use that kind of language. Oh, interesting. You know, I'm, giving, I'm issuing you a direct order. You know, I never said that once in 20 years. I did yeah, have an ensign. Post office, it's all the time. Yeah. No, I had an ensign who worked for me initially, her first job, and she would try to order people. And I'd be like, okay, look it. We don't have to say that. The fact that you're an officer and you tell them to do something, they understand it's an order, you know. Sure. Yeah. You don't have to say that to anybody. So, yeah. Have you both got, can you each give us three movies you would highly recommend that would be relevant that inspire you in your work, just so we can get it crossed over nicely in pop culture for our listeners? Oh, all right. If where's my think movie of it, list? If you can think of it. Stacy, you've got your drone ones. Is there anything you want to add to that? Oh, boy. Um, what are some of my favorites? Boy, now you got us on the spot. I know. Well, I, what I was the one with Demi Moore? G.I. Jane, Jane, I'm obsessed Jane. with it. Well, I was obsessed with that movie. Yeah, we talked about that in the in the first book we did, not the one we're oh, working cool. on now. Yeah. Cool. Um, well, Ridley Scott makes a lot of good female character movies. Yes, he, he really does. does. He, he's very he sensitive. Yeah. Um, there are many parts of G.I. Jane I love. I'm going to turn around and look at my movies for a second. Yeah, do it. Oh, I look um, at your collection there. Good. Yeah, because, <laughs> that's part of it. Yeah. Um... I'm I mean, there's Meg to... Ryan has military movies. It doesn't have to just be with women, but I'm trying to think of some. Right. Well, yeah, she's got one. Uh, oh, gosh. Courage Under Fire. Courage Thank Under you. Fire, yeah. Thank yeah. you. Your mind works much faster than mine does <laughs> with these things. That's actually a really good movie because it does show a woman who puts her, puts her people before herself. Hmm. and makes the ultimate sacrifice to um to so the others can survive hmm. um that was that's actually a pretty good movie um i'm trying to think uh, one of my favorites for sure has got to be uh, i was a male war bride oh uh, <laughs> yes. yes that is and a classic also, um yeah. there's a movie from 1948 called homecoming with lana turner as a nurse yes and fantastic yeah. because of what a strong character she is right love that one so proudly we hail yeah, was about the nurses the yeah the proudly um, we hail and cry havoc definitely right right so those are world war two movies thank you um I actually, one of my favorite movies, which is not going to be in this book we're working on, is 
okay now let me think what the real title is it's a chinese version of mulan the live action from 2009 i think it's just called Hua mulan Hua mulan and um it's not like the disney version that has magic and there's no singing and dancing it's uh, my only complaint was when they showed a close-up of her hands after she's been a warrior for 20 years she had a manicure oh <laughs> and i was like really my fingernails don't look like that on a regular basis perfect oh you know you you did remind me what's the what's the title of your book with gi jade and other essays and we'll let's plug that it's called it's right here a century in uniform yeah thank you right here I love it. Good job. Looking at it. <laughs> yeah, good job. Good. So listeners, uh, we would like you to check that out. And I bet you can order that on Amazon. Absolutely. You can. You can. On the ordering machine. As, <laughs> as like, we call it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. call it the ordering machine. Well, Deborah and yes. Stacy, if there's anything closing you want to add, please. We've got a couple of minutes. Um, it's been great to have you on. Any closing thoughts? Go ahead, Deb. Uh, oh, ooh, I don't really know that I have any other than, um, you know, I I truly believe in peace and pacifism mm -hmm. and hope this Ukrainian mess gets sorted out. Um, Another stereotype broken. Most mil I'm from a military family. Most military people prefer peace. Yes, exactly yeah. right. Exactly right because we know the consequences yeah. we've seen them in person and families suffer the individual service person suffers yes definitely definitely uh, well, fascinating to, to speak with you both uh i'd like to to thank you on behalf of candy thank you both for coming on and, oh, and joining thanks us. for having us really thanks appreciate it us. appreciate it it's been great to see you again. See you in February. See you in February. <laughs> Let's get Eugene oh, out. Yeah. Hey, maybe Bye. I'll come. Oh, yeah. yeah. Please do. Please Bye. do. Okay. Take care. Thank you. Good. Five, four, three, two, one. Hey, we're here with Lisa Florshek. And um, I met her in New Mexico at the conference in the past week, and we just hit it off right away. And um, I asked her to come and tell us about her project that she just researched on Mennonite cooking. Um, I know Eugene's going to really love hearing about it. We love talking about food. This is going to be like a long comfort we food like diner. Food. Yeah, we love food. <laughs> and just before we get going, tell us about yourself and tell us what you're up to tomorrow, if you don't mind. Lisa. Okay. So... I'm an artist. I prefer to work in clay, although my background is in metals. And um, I just recently, fairly recently anyway, seven years ago, moved to Arkansas, but I was born and bred in New York State. Um, and I teach at a small community college um, in the A-State system, the, the Arkansas State system, um, called BB. And so ASUBB is it's known. And tomorrow I am participating in a swim across America event to help make waves fighting cancer. And what that event does is it um, it is a charity that raises money to 
um, help with cancer research and its um, beneficiaries are pretty much nationwide. Um, a lot of big cancer hospitals in their beneficiaries, but some small ones too. And the whole um, idea is that, you know, if they can make a lot of money to fund, you know, research projects, um, then, you know, and funnel it towards a research project that has promise, then the chances are that the research project will help, you know, thousands rather than just a few. Very so that sounds uh, very good and very important. Good job. How, how many more? Yeah, so if you, if, you how know, much swimming do you have to do tomorrow? How much swimming? Well, okay. So we've kind of made March our cancer awareness month. And so on, um, on Thursday, I swam a mile and a half and tomorrow I'm going to run a bunch on Monday, rather last Monday, I worked with a bunch of the swim team kids and they just did relays and had some fun at practice. And tomorrow I'm going to do that with the public. But after we have the relays with the public, I'm going to get in and, and probably swim two and a half or three miles, oh. depending on, wow. on who donates what. If I, I need like another 10 or 15 donations, maybe even 20 donations to hit the thousand dollar mark, which isn't a whole lot of money for, you know, when I think about it, it's like I've raised more in the past, but for right now, I guess these times it's, it's, sure. it's a lot of money. Yeah. And I have this challenge out there that if, you know, if somebody were to, you know, donate this much money, then I would swim 200 butterfly, just like Craig Beardsley, although I'd wow. never do it in re world record time. <laughs> That's super cool. He laughed at that, by the way. Yeah, I <laughs> bet. And also funny. you're getting, you're getting exercise. It's good. For yes. Everybody. Yes. And it's great. I love swimming. It's my play. It's my forced meditation because you have to breathe to swim, you know, and it's a way that I can focus on my breathing. <laughs> not, so cool. Not the world. Great. Well, the added bonus, you, you, you come with a lot to offer us today. So the thing that really caught my eye was I thought Eugene would really enjoy hearing about Mennonite cooking because I saw a lot of commonalities between some of the food we love around here and what you were talking yeah. about. Can Especially you Especially in, Chica in Chicago and Toronto, a lot of Pol this is very big Polish um, neighborhoods, right? Right, yeah. right. So I, I live in one. one. He's in one you too, yeah. In one. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, my my family, Eugene, that the joke is that you had pork with a side of pork. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. That is good. Did you have meat sticks? Um, not so much. Okay. I mean, we had a, a lot of fresh kibasi and a lot of um my family tended to like wedding kibasi. So they oh. ate that pretty much all the time. <laughs> okay. And you know, they liked uh um you know, a lot of pork tenderloin and sauerkraut in, in, I don't know. Um, we cooked a lot of pork. I don't really eat a lot of pork. I found out early on, probably in my teens that the reason I didn't feel so good after eating pork is because I just can't process My body just okay. can't process it. So, yeah. um, I indulge on, on holidays <laughs> and that's right. about it. Right. You know, so what is your relationship with Mennonite food? 
Okay, so this is really interesting. I'm an avid cookbook collector. I probably have about 2,000 cookbooks. It's like wow. ridiculous. <laughs> awesome. And um, I, ha- I also, I have four kids and I kind of raised them in a very frugal manner. So when, um, when their spouses were even introduced to the family, it's always kind of like Christmas or spouses and friends. And we'd have an open house on Christmas Eve. Um, were introduced to the family, there was always this idea that you upcycled or recycled gifts, mm-hmm. you know? So um, my daughter-in-law a couple of years ago, Hallie, you know, found this Mennonite cookbook in a thrift shop and she thought for sure I would love it just because I love cookbooks. And also it had a whole bunch of family, what we call family recipes, you know, and, or at least what she thought were family recipes. It turned out to be another cookbook author's um, notes and research, which was kind of funny, you know, and it wasn't what, it really wasn't what I was looking for. I was, you know, when she handed it to me and I started thinking about doing some research because I was in my PhD um, studies. Oh yes. I'm a PhD student too. I forgot to tell you that. Um, In my studies, I was was taking (laughs) <laughs> I was taking a, a, a food history course and um, I had to do this project that basically researched a cuisine. Mm. And so I decided since I hadn't really given an in-depth look to that cookbook that I would, I would focus on that thinking in my, in my mind, I was thinking about how, oh, this will be easy. You know, it's a summer course. There was four weeks. This will be easy because my dad's family was from Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of experience with the Amish and Mennonite um, cultures of Pennsylvania only because of proximity. And so I had this, I went into it with these like huge stereotypes that I had no idea that were even stereotypes. They were just so wrong. (laughs) And so, you know, here I am thinking this cookbook will be easy and to research. And so when I started researching it, I had, I knew, I recalled having a student who is um, raised Anabaptist. And I thought, well, the first thing I'll do is I'll reach out to her and see, you know, what she could offer me. And she said, Oh, you got to talk to my mom. So I talked to her mom and a bunch of ladies um, from that particular church here in Arkansas. And, um, uh, boy, was I wrong. And then I, like, I also talked to, to, um, Dr. Nolt, Steve Nolt from the Amish, the Young Amish Cultural Center. Um, what's that? That's what it was called. The Young Amish Culture. Uh, yeah. So Young Amish Cultural Center. Um, and he, or young Amish, yeah, studies, whatever. Anyway, so I talked to this Dr. Steve Nolt and he told me that like he was from Pennsylvania and he basically told me, yeah, you're wrong. What you're thinking about is Pennsylvania Dutch culture and old Prussian cuisine. So I started researching that and then comparing the two. And um, it was interesting. I found a lot of similarities, but I also found that part of the reason why they get lumped together so much was because of that Western construct of, you know, creating a commodity out of a situation. 
And um, it started around the Civil War, basically. Oh, really? Yeah. um, It really, like around the Civil War um, in Pennsylvania, you know, I guess it's around all war times because another significant one was World War One and World War Two, so or another significant two. Um, but there was the idea that these these people were immigrants and they were invading, and they kind of lumped everybody that came from anywhere else in Pennsylvania into one category as being Pennsylvania Dutch, especially if they spoke. German. Uh, And did they want them to serve in the military? Um, I don't know about that so much, but I do know that there was a lot of, you know, like the newspapers picked it up and kind of um, sensationalized the, you know, the culture and the cuisine. And there were, there was some pushback, actually. There was, there were people that wrote to the newspapers in, you know, the 1860s saying stop this because you're going to create stereotypes and it just kept going and going what's interesting is that in the the 1930s um when hitler started rising in germany uh there was this fear-mongering you know how americans tend to do that i'm sorry but we tend to do that (laughs) um there's fear-mongering about how maybe the the people in Pennsylvania that are associated with being Pennsylvania Dutch had similar sentiments to Hitler. Mm. And so there was kind of this um, back and forth trying to decide whether, um, you know, some newspapers were promoting, like, don't, don't fear them. And some people were promoting, you know, you should fear them. And basically what happened was, is that there's another nostalgia and romantic, culture that's set up about the food mm. what's interesting is that the that within the pennsylvania dutch the amish or the anabaptists really actually only make up for about five percent of the population and mm. um, but it was a it was a good way to you know commodify cuisine okay and they got exploited i noticed so, something i wrote down something you said which caught my eye one foodways rooted in faith and that at one point groups of people said are we going to put government ahead of faith oh I yeah that so, was some part of the definition too of their yeah so the the anabaptists um from what i understand were basically um be, basically became a a faith group in about 1525 it was around the reformation okay that's a long time and, ago Yeah. And so what happened was, and this is the link to old Prussian cuisine. This is why um, you find that, that Ashkenazi Jews and um, the Polish, you know, Polish people, and to some extent, even um, German and, you know, like areas that are associated with Prussia. So Germany, even to some extent, Alsace, France, you find that those cuisines are very, very similar. And it, and again, that's because of proximity, but it's also because of persecution. And so in um, around the time of the reformation, basically a bunch of, of young people got together, mostly 
or they were mostly young um, artists and craftsmen decided that they were really not happy with the Catholic church. They felt that the Catholic church was corrupt and that they wanted to worship in their own manner. So they started um, forming these groups that would meet in secret and, um, you know, basically have this love of, of a literal translation of the Bible and a love of being peaceful people and not trusting of the government and where, you know, they wanted to emulate the life of Christ in a sense. And um, in that, in that sense, they started, for, you know, their, their movement took off. And um, so uh, um, Mano Simmons, Mano Simmons, um, who was a Dutch priest, left. He left the the Catholic Church and started like really forming a um, a structured background for them, you know, so that they not so that they would they would replicate the church, but so that their their beliefs would have some foundation. And um, after that, they basically had a mass baptism in 1525 saying, we're going to, you know, we're going to follow this faith tradition and, and the Mennonites were born and about 200 years later, um, they had, there was a schism in, uh, in the church. And um, that's when, um, Amos decided to, who is a, a, from Alsace, France, he decided to lead a group and they became the, the um, Amish. And his main concern was that the Mennonites were too liberal, which really, it, it, that's really interesting to me. And I know that I kind of sanitized it because, you know, we only have a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and I haven't really... I mean, I've delved, I've, I've dove into it and I've had discussions with scholars and with the, the women that I worked with in the Anabaptist tradition, but I will say that there is as many denominations of Anabaptists as, as there are foodways. I mean, it's just like kind of the, you know, there, and each one is different. So I, I really want to be respectful and say that that's, you know, that's it in a nutshell, but the nutshell is really kind of almost disrespectful because it's too short. Well, the other thing that sort of stood out to me, and you, you mentioned it in your presentation a number of times, was this relationship between faith and maybe rejecting a kind of decadent religion or a decadent lifestyle and frugality. Yes, any, so any of the recipes, can you tell us about frugality? Yeah, so one of the, the one of the things that was really um, stressed when I when I was working with these ladies in um, Arkansas was that that it's really in- essential to be frugal. I mean, um, they like for instance when they have a church supper or they they make a lot of food for a funeral or a community member that's sick they usually will do it out of the church kitchen and everything gets recorded and all of the leftovers get recorded. So they know how much to make, how much was utilized and how to, how to proceed the next time. 
Um, there's also the idea that, um, you know, maybe you don't have meat every night you or a big meal every day. You have a meal like a midday meal because that's the time of day when you need the most energy. Um, every other day it might have meat in it, but most of the time it's, you know, like she was, um, this woman, Deborah, that I was talking to, she said that most of the time her family would eat like bread soup for, you know, or cold oh. soup, cold bread soup. What um, is cold bread soup? It's basically, um, you, t- you take, they make fresh bread all the time. You take the bread, the, the leftover stale bread and you, or you toast the bread and you put it in the bottom of the bowl and you might put some fruit on top of it, maybe some nuts and some milk and, uh, and you let it soak and, um, you know, you sweeten it with sugar or honey and you let it soak and, and really soak up that, that, um, liquid. And sometimes you might even put yogurt on it. So it really is just basically what we would, you know, what, what consumers in the, in the Americas would call cereal, right? Cereal. <laughs> yeah. Call, or yeah. cold bread pudding or bread pudding. Or cold I've bread got, pudding. I've got a reference. Know, it's hmm. funny. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, but my, okay. my family, I mean, I, both my family and my ex's family, both, you know, one, my family was both, both halves are from one was from Germany. The other one was from, from Poland, but very similar parts. Like, you know, the border kept shifting off and on. So, you know, sometimes my dad's family was really German and sometimes my mom's family was really Polish, you know? So yeah. um, our, our family is no, no different. Um, you know, we don't know really, we say we're Polish, but we could be Czech. Czech. Right. right. So. And, and, uh, and having traveled in France and Germany, the border, they have monuments that mark how often the border changes, changes change right. constantly. So we had a tra- in both of those families, there was a tradition of, of bread pudding or, or bread soup, you uh-huh. know, where it was, uh-huh. but it was mostly eaten in the summer. You know, my, my ex's family, they would put fruit cocktail in the fridge and uh-huh. dump it over toasted white bread. That was like cinnamon, you know, you make cinnamon toast mm-hmm. and you dump it over the toasted white bread in a bowl and put milk on top. Right. You also <laughs> very good. It's also Is very it? fr- frugal with time. Because you've got to get back to working, right, right, and so that was that was something. And they then they also talked about having having group suppers. You know, like you, mm. you know, they have this faith tradition of meeting for worship or for prayers a couple of days a week, and so each each time it would alternate who got to cook mm-hmm. and people would bring snacks sometimes, you know, and, and, right. and the lifestyle is just very frugal. Like you don't waste things. You don't, you know, you don't buy more than you need. And they base, uh, they do a lot of hunting and fishing and preserving. It's kind of food. amazing to think and of they that. Get, yeah. And they get together like, you know, different families have different resources. So this, you know, they were talking about how this one family in their community has um, five acres or so of raspberry bushes and they would get together as a group 
at when the raspberries were ripe and they would all pick raspberries and then they would all can raspberries and then they would split it up between families. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't even matter if you participated or not, just being part of the community, you would get your share of the raspberries. Yeah, that pie that you showed a picture of looked pretty good. I've got some photos. Like I'll, I'll share when we when we publish this podcast episode. I will share some of the photos I took. You know, I've okay. got a recipe here you had on the on your on your presentation. I think it's called Som Promise Cake. Um, I, I, compromise, oh, compromise, compromise cake. cake. Oh yeah, I like the name of that compromise cake. Sorry, okay, so there's a really th that was my grandmother's recipe actually oh, funny. in her handwriting. Okay. Um, but there's a really interesting tradition about shoe fly pie, which is yeah. like this, this I'm very curious um, molasses, that. eggless molasses cake, right? Yeah. Um, that you either like wet, with a wet bottom or a dry bottom, depending on your personal taste. And then, um, and that was like kind of linked to either the Jerry, the historical, um, linked is either the Jerry Lynn pie or the centennial cake. Well, the centennial cake, um, which was, was published in a lot of newspapers in the 1870s was, um, linked to, it was for the, the centennial of the country, mm -hmm. but that in itself was linked to the stack cake with the Appalachian stack cake, which is, you know, if you show up at a wedding and, and, Appalachia, um, a lot of times you just bring one layer of the cake. Oh, wow. I love that idea. And then you, and then at the end of like when everybody is, how they assemble the cake is they put like apple butter in between the layers. So each layer is about, is like a big pancake, you know, and they I put, love that idea. Like, um, applesauce in between each layer. And what they, what I learned that the link to the compromise cake is that that's taking it one step further and just going without all the layers, you know, because oh. in a, an Appalachian wedding, it was kind of like, well, the more layers you had, the more luck you had. Right. So, oh. but all of this came out of the whole idea that, um, you know, you want to make the best of what you have from being frugal and the, and they're, all of these things are linked together and they're just slight variations and um, linked to Prussian cuisine, actually. Which is so interesting. I mean, I well, well, what is Prussian? Is it before Russia? So there was a... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm very bad at... at that's uh, that's okay. There was a time in history where um, there was a kingdom that was between Germany and um, Russia. Okay. You know, like, so kind of covered Poland. Yep. And the borders kept um, going back and forth okay. because, okay. Uh, you know, they would either grow or shrink depending mm -hmm. on conflict. And kind of the downfall of Prussia happened in, in I, from what I understand. I mean, I'm, I'm not too familiar with, I mean, I know that's where the area is, is Germany, Russia, Poland, um, and a little bit of France. Um, a little bit of Switzerland. I know that that like it's Northern Europe, right? So, um, or Northern Eastern Europe, right? So, so, um, so I know that um, 
that area was never really settled very well. Um, and it kept, it, the borders kept going back and forth, but in the late 19th century, um, Russia went to war and was really going to start taking back some, some land. And so that's when you find like, for instance, a lot of the, the immigrants from Poland and from Switzerland and from Germany and France start making their way to the United States because they didn't, especially men, they didn't want to be, you know, or men or not men, but young boys, they didn't want to be conscripted. Their mothers didn't want those boys conscripted in the army. So in the Russian army, so they sent them packing, interesting. which is really interesting. How cool does, you know, I know that my grandfather, sound. my grandfather came here when he was 12. So, oh. you know, I can't imagine, I can't imagine sending my 12 year old off right. to a foreign land. And from what I understand, he never, never saw his parents again after oh. that, you wow. know? Wow. So you think about that. Like you think about the sacrifices people make. Mm-hmm. Um, shoe fly pie sounds so good. I'm looking at it on Wikipedia. It's like molasses. Yep. And it says Pennsylvania Dutch cuisine, uh, a gingerbread pie in a way. Does that sound right? Um, crumb cake? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it so, sounds like it has a few different incarnations. Yeah. So it originated in its current state, like I said, in the post-Civil War. Um, yeah. And it was a coffee cake. And um, uh it's really unclear about how it became quintessentially Anabaptist, <laughs> okay. but, but it really, um, it really has become acquainted with, with uh, um, Amish cuisine and um, uh, William so Moyes Weaver. Can, can, I, actually, can I back you up for a second? Sure. Here? I'm, are, are we, when we talk about, Amish or Mennonites? Are we talking about sects of a broader religion? Yes. So the broader religion is Anabaptist. Okay, I understand that. Okay. And, okay. And, um, and Lisa has a great and, chart, which I'll share on Facebook. <laughs> sometimes you got to talk to me like I'm like a three year old. No, we do. We do, <laughs> especially especially when it's audio. We have to put in extra information on audio. So. Um, William Moyes Weaver um, wrote this book called this as American as shoe fly pie. And it's the food lore and fake lore of, of Pennsylvania Dutch cooking. And um, he goes into, he's extensive about his thoughts on different things, you know, um, the commodification of um, Amish cuisine is one of them or um, Anabaptist cuisine is one of them. And he talks about shoe fly pie be, being, you know, just basically equated with, with the Amish, even though there's no real clear connection to how it became equated with the, the Amish. Um, when I did my research, I found that some of the coal miners in Pennsylvania made a very similar cake you know, for as long as, you know, as long as they had settled in Pennsylvania, um, especially in the anthracite region, that, that they had made a very similar cake for a really long time. It was just a frugal way to make a coffee cake without any eggs. Uh, 
Right. Uh, that, that's yeah. interesting. Without eggs, uh, without that protein. On, on the Wikipedia page, it said it um, got very popular with, with the invention of a cast iron pot, which made home cooks being able to make a pie or a cake much easier. I thought that oh, was pretty I interesting. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> oh, hold on a minute. It is, I use a Dutch oven for uh, when I bake bread. I bake bread inside a Dutch oven in my oven. Oh, so I do du- too. So the Dutch oven retains the steam. Mm. Right. For like, I'll do that for 20 minutes at a high heat and then, uh, then take the lid off and bake it for exactly. the rest of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I found that in, in what book was that in that I learned? And it's funny. I learned more about um, making glazes by making bread because of that book. Interesting. It was a bread making book. It was, um, uh, tartan maybe mm-hmm. oh i love tartan so, so how did how did that affect your glazes by making bread was it the oh just because it reminded me <laughs> about how important hydration and weighing things by the gram are oh. um, it's funny <laughs> my my kids always laugh i mean I know this is getting away from what we're talking about but my kids always laugh that they learned they learned that that Cooking, I was always one of those, like I'd read the recipe and I'd never follow the recipe. I would just like kind of loosely follow the recipe. Mm-hmm. And uh, me too. <laughs> and I would just add whatever, you know, that I thought it needed. Even if I had never tried the recipe. <laughs> well, with my glazes, the Satan Lace Potter ceramic glazes, I was never one of those. I would, I would loosely like weigh things and then kind of, you know, put water in until it hydrated where I thought it needed to be hydrated. Wow. And so one time I, um, in 2000, I think it was 2009. No, it was earlier than that. 2006. I got hit by a car on my bicycle and, um, my, my, I had to have shoulder reconstruction and, um, my I had to I had to fire a wood kiln. I had these really big pots, and I had this idea of what I wanted. And and my son Justin, who um, was in art school at the time, decided he would make my glazes for me. So he asked me for the recipes, and I I gave him the recipes, and they were ones that I had developed, right? Mm-hmm. And they had all these like accurate measurements because I had had to turn them in, uh-huh. and um, he makes the glazes. And I put them on my pots. And to this day, I can't, I cannot get the brilliance that he managed to get out of wow. my glazes with it, the way he makes it. Cause he was so meticulous. Right. Mm. And I just can't be meticulous <laughs> like that. So. Right. And if I get a recipe, I can't make it unless I have all the ingredients for the first time, I have to make it exactly like the book. Oh, I can't and, do that. I, I know. Can't. That's, I just can't. I that's, that's great. I think it's freedom. It's good. I get too I'm, nervous. I'm with you, Lisa. I, I make it up as I go along. You know, or I'll have a know, vague right? idea. Okay, I'm going to make cornbread. Yeah. It goes like this. And I won't consult a recipe. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Well, it's funny. Like the other day we were cooking. We I had just gotten this Grace Young book. And we were cooking frog legs over rice. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, I'm looking at the recipe and I was like, it needs onions and garlic. It doesn't have any onions and garlic in it. And I was like asking Joey if I could actually, you know, actually do that. (laughs) 
you know, and, and, and around here in this house, it's kind of like, well, you know, onions and garlic have to go in everything. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I would, makes sense I would, to me too. I'm with you. I would, I would be suspicious of a savory food without those in it. <laughs> right? Right. So great. Well, I so really enjoyed I, this. I'm trying to think if there's anything else we want to wrap up with about Mennonite food. Is there a point we missed or anything? In our short time. Well, today. I guess the thing that I the thing that I really learned was um I really learned about how through all of this this idea of being stereotyped, like how they were how the cuisine is stereotyped, how um how their culture is exploited. Um, the thing that I really learned is that the their faith kind of just you know it rises above all of that and um so that's where that's where my title came from from that research mm. as being a um cuisine of faith is because or faith-based cuisine was because it was based in frugality it was based on what they had what you know what they have i should i shouldn't say past tense mm-hmm. ba- it's based on what they have um it's based on their mission experiences, you know, like the women here talk about one of their favorite church dinners is, is Ricardo chicken. And, and it comes, it's a, the recipe comes from Belize, you know, and the reason they like it is because of their, it reminds them of their Belize mission trip, you know? So that makes um, sense. And it's, it's frugal. It can feed a whole lot of people in a, short amount of ingredients. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that is something like whether or not you're a faith-based person, uh, frugality is a good skill to have and still yeah, tasty. Yeah, I wish I had and it. still tasty. <laughs> I know. And still tasty. It is something to learn. Like you can get by sometimes. You know, I have to tell you that, that one of the things I've learned about Arkansas is that from moving here from New York, you know, New Yorkers like, the, the New Yorkers that I knew, I should say, around the metropolitan area weren't necessarily frugal. And the one, the one thing that I learned here was that actually that they, they are really frugal. Like frugality is something that, that is considered wonderful, you know? And it's also environmental. It's got an eco um, philosophy and ethos about it too ecologically wise to not you know so, not yeah. people that are vegan and vegetarian in order to not go into that that um although i i can't really say that about arkansas because there's a lot of <laughs> poultry and meat sure. processing places so sure. <laughs> and the agriculture isn't necessarily um you know ecological either but i will say that that frugality is something that's really stressed here and and I don't know if it's um, the evangelical nature of the place, or which is a whole nother story. Well, it can also be geographical just, too, right? I know people who live in um, remote areas and they have to be free. Right. Well, and yeah. that's what I was going to get yeah. to, or whether right. it's um, it's the the rural um, aspect of it, or even if it's just the idea that the resources in, in the state as a whole mm-hmm. um, have not been exploited in the sense of, you know, you, you kind of, 
resources, I mean, human resources, is just, you just kind of, um, well, even that's not right. I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we're going to have you back just, on to talk about play, and we are at the okay. end of my Zoom. Uh, my Zoom program here only goes forty minutes, so okay. we'll have you back, and we'll we'll revisit. You'll probably think of something tonight and be texting me. I forgot. I forgot. <laughs> That's okay. Right. I think it was really, really well, interesting, and we really appreciate you coming it was, on. Lisa. It was wonderful. This is fun, and Eugene. I'm sorry I kept boxing you out. That's the New Yorker in me. Uh, that that's okay. It's a pleasure to meet you. Pleasure to meet you, you know, and we'll talk I, again soon. Alrighty. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.